Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Did you know? Many GameCube games have differences between regions, often to censor violence, religious references, and anything perceived as unsavory. These changes even affected the system's best-selling game, Super Smash Bros. Melee. In the German version of Melee, and every subsequent Super Smash Bros. game, Popo's name was changed to Pepe. This is because the word Popo means butt in German. Another GameCube exclusive that was somewhat censored is Pokemon Colosseum. In the international version of the game, Rui, who accompanies the character, had her shirt and skirt lengthened. This was to cover her midriff and make her overall appearance more family-friendly. There were also many regional changes made to F-Zero GX. In the Japanese version of the game, if the player asks Roger Buster during the post-game interview what he'd do with 1 billion credits of prize money, he'll say that he'd get a nice cold beer. However, if you ask him the same question in the English version of the game, he'll simply say he'd get a nice cold drink. In the Japanese game, the player can also ask Digiboy, Do you believe in God? They respond by saying, Who believes in such delusions? This question was removed entirely in the Western release. Another religious reference was removed from the Western release. In the Japanese version, the player can tell Black Shadow, Your rivals are howling for revenge. And he'll respond by saying, I'll send you straight to hell. This question and response were both removed in the West. Another religious reference was removed from Pikmin 2. In the Japanese release of the game, the silencer item is worth 666 pokos. In all other releases, it's worth 670 pokos. Since the number 666 is associated with Satan in Christianity, its price was likely changed in the West to remove this connection. Yet another religious reference was removed from the Japanese version of Batten Kaito's Origins. In the Japanese game, there's a scene where the character Sagi is tied to a cross. In the English release, however, the cross was changed to a slab. This was most likely to remove any religious symbolism or references to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Several GameCube games have also been censored to reduce violence and gore. In early Japanese trailers for the GameCube's Resident Evil remake, hunters can be seen slashing off the player's head, just like in the original PlayStation Resident Evil. However, the hunters' attacks were altered in the final game so that no decapitation took place. Kenneth's death was also changed so his head was still attached to his body when the player finds his body. These changes were likely made due to Japan's Sero Ratings Board and their strict views on decapitation in games. Interestingly, however, these changes were carried over to all regional variations of the game. The Japan-exclusive book, GameCube Biohazard Official Navigation Book, describes another way the Resident Evil remake was changed. Apparently, the staircase camera angles had to be altered due to one of Jill's outfits. Jill's unlockable Resident Evil 3 Nemesis clothes feature a very short skirt, so short that her underwear would have been on show if the PS1 staircase camera angles remained. The color of her underwear was also changed to black. This was so her panties were harder to see in reflections, such as at the water fountain. The GameCube-exclusive Chibi-Robo has many regional differences. In the Japanese version, the Free Ranger's weapons look fairly realistic considering the game's art style. Their design was altered in the English version, where they were given noses and their guns were changed to look more toy-like. 
The GameCube had some interesting hardware for the time, such as its broadband adapter, which allowed for online play. Simply having online wasn't good enough for some developers, however. Battlefield 1942, the first entry in DICE's online-centric Battlefield series, was originally pitched as a GameCube exclusive. This plan fell through when DICE became unsatisfied with Nintendo's lack of a robust strategy for online gaming. Several more games were planned to have online functionality. F-Zero GX and Mario Power Tennis were both planned to feature LAN multiplayer, but this was dropped for both titles. In May 2001, Namco announced they were making six games with online play for the PS2, Xbox, and GameCube, but these games never materialized. Only a handful of games actually took advantage of the GameCube's networking features. Kirby Air Ride, 1080 Avalanche, and Mario Kart Double Dash all featured LAN multiplayer that let players race against each other using multiple GameCubes and TVs. Double Dash in particular allowed multiplayer for 16 players across 8 systems and 8 TVs. There were only 3 games released internationally that had true online multiplayer. Fantasy Star Online Episode 1 and 2, Fantasy Star Online Episode 1 and 2 Plus, and Fantasy Star Online Episode 3, Card Revolution. Two Japan-only games also used online. The first, GKO Powerful Pro Yaku 10, was a baseball game with downloadable content. The other game, Homeland, was a unique RPG that let players host their own game servers for 35 other players. While the guests would cooperate to complete quests, the host would play the role of God by spawning items and monsters on the server. By default, the GameCube used traditional composite cables for audio and video output to the TV, but it also came with a digital video port. By using component cables, the system could output higher quality video than with standard cables. The component cables were only available through Nintendo's official store, and were made in small amounts. This was because the GameCube itself didn't contain the necessary hardware to convert the digital signal to the analog signal used for the component cables. This meant the hardware had to be built into the cable itself, making them expensive to produce. The digital output port was only built into early GameCube models. Systems produced after May 2004 with the DOL 101 serial number ditched the digital port. This was because Nintendo's own research found that less than 1% of GameCube owners were using it. In the years following their discontinuation, demand for the component cable surged among players who wanted the best video quality possible. Because of their extremely limited supply, prices for the cables skyrocketed on the second-hand market, going for as much as $250, more than the price of the GameCube itself when it launched. Over the course of its life, more than a dozen different colors and variants of the GameCube were released. As well as the default indigo, black, and platinum silver colors, there was also a pearl white color exclusive to Europe and an orange spice GameCube exclusive to Japan. There was even a brown GameCube, though this model was only for game developers. The Starlight Gold Edition, sold exclusively at Toys R Us Japan, is one of the rarest models in existence. Other rare variants include 150 units of a special white GameCube released only in Japan, and a custom MTV Contest GameCube, which only five are known to exist. There was also a Symphonic Green GameCube bundled with Tales of Symphonia released in Japan and France. As part of the Char's customized box set, a red GameCube with a custom faceplate was bundled with a matching controller and Game Boy player, a special game demo disc, and a Gundam action figure. A Hanshin Tigers-themed GameCube was made available in 2003 to commemorate the Japan League Championship victory of the Hanshin Tigers baseball team, their first such win since 1985. 
There was also a GameCube with a Heineken faceplate, made as a prize for a contest where people bought 10,000 bottles of Heineken beer. A small number of GameCubes with custom faceplates were also given to employees of ATI Technologies to thank them for the work on the GameCube's GPU, codenamed Flipper. In later years, several GameCube games ended up becoming very valuable collector's items due to their rarity. Mint condition copies of Pokémon Box and NCAA College Basketball 2K3 can sell for up to $1,000 or more online. Gotcha Force, a creature-collecting shooter released by Capcom in 2003, originally launched to mediocre reviews and low sales. However, the title eventually gained a cult following and became highly sought after, often going for two to $500 on the second-hand market. Demand for the game was so high that Capcom actually issued a new printing of the game in Japan in 2012. One of the rarest pieces of GameCube software, albeit one of the most obscure, is the official GameCube service disc. Starting in the days of the original Nintendo Entertainment System, Nintendo operated a line of hardware repair centers known as Nintendo World Class Service, and the service disc was used by this repair team to test diagnose problems with GameCube hardware. After the service was shut down in 2003, all copies of the disc were recalled by Nintendo, making it an extremely rare find. In addition to its technical uses, the service disc contained quite a bit of strange hidden content. There are several songs in the disc's files that were presumably used for audio testing, including a rendition of the Lon Lon Ranch theme from the Ocarina of Time Rearranged album, a version of the Super Mario Bros. theme from the Super Mario World Jazz album, and a sped-up version of Sitting on the Dock of the Bay by Otis Redding. The Images folder contains a few odd graphics, like a color-inverted picture of Mario, the logo of company ArtX, a subsidiary of ATI Technologies, and an image of the word Dolphin surrounded by stars and a poorly drawn smiley face. Because there were plans to include 3D functionality in the GameCube before development costs made the feature impractical to implement, the service disc also contains images meant to test the system's 3D display. While most of the images were of generic in-game models, some of them were screenshots from the game Quake. The system had other unique additions. At Space World 2000, Nintendo announced a version of the GameCube's memory card that would house an SD card. This would potentially allow players to save game data to an SD card, dramatically expanding the amount of information that could be saved. However, this never came to fruition, at least not in its original form. The Japanese version of Animal Crossing released with a very similar device. This unique memory card used SD cards so that players could save screenshots from the game. The device is only compatible with Animal Crossing and Pokémon Channel. Did you know? Early in Metroid Prime's development, Retro Studios experimented with a third-person perspective, as opposed to the first-person viewpoint in the final product. Since they'd already worked with Rare on Jet Force Gemini, a third-person shooter for the Nintendo 64, there was much deliberation over which perspective to go with. However, after producer Shigeru Miyamoto remarked that the third-person viewpoint wasn't as intuitive, they officially made the switch to first-person. Somewhat ironically, this change caused another difficulty to arise. The Morph Ball, one of the series' trademark abilities, was a huge sticking point for the team during development. The team couldn't make the necessary Morph Ball transition between first-person to third-person flow seamlessly. The change needed to be as smooth and natural as it was in Super Metroid, and if this couldn't be achieved, the ability would have to be cut. Yet again, Miyamoto was instrumental, stating that if they couldn't make the Morph Ball work, then the game wouldn't work. The team doubled their efforts and created a system that Miyamoto approved of, allowing work on Prime to continue. Another consequence of this perspective switch was the concept of visors, which became an iconic trait of the trilogy. This was yet another idea proposed by Miyamoto, although the way he suggested it was cryptic. In conversation with the retro staff, he threw out the question, 
question. What would it be like if Samus had a bug's head, much to their confusion? This can be detailed from a conversation between senior producer Brian Walker and senior designer Mike Wicken, stating, At the time, I remember going back to our office and saying, switching heads? What does that have to do with Metroid? He wasn't asking if she had the head of a fly, he was talking about the mechanic of altered perception as a whole. And so the visor system came to be, allowing Samus to use different visors as a puzzle-solving element throughout her travels. One of the visors that Nintendo viewed as a critical addition to the game was the scan visor, although this particular concept was delivered to the team late in development. To make sure it was complete on time, Retro set one artist and one programmer to the task. However, the Retro staff found it boring at the time, with President and CEO Mike Kelbaugh stating years later, In the US, even now, people hate scanning, but it's popular in Japan. So we tried to make it more collectible and more informative in terms of describing how to beat enemies, etc. as we went along. The scan visor went on to become a staple in the Prime series, returning in every subsequent installment. There are various bits of unused concept art and development documents that run throughout the entire Prime series. Ridley, Samus' reptilian rival, went through multiple portrayals in the design phase. Early in development, he was grotesque, with an exposed ribcage and intestines. A later version was more robotic, utilizing metal components, resulting in a vaguely steampunk-esque design. The joints also resembled the design of the Chozo artifacts found in-game, hinting at what his origin may have been at one stage during development. Like Ridley, Mother Brain also appeared in concept art, although she didn't make the cut. The concept provided a sense of scale in comparison to Samus, revealing a much larger mother brain compared to previous iterations. Amongst the other unused art was a large, mysterious flying creature, complete with its own animation, as well as designs hinting at a much more expansive impact crater. It appears that at some point in development, Samus's speed boost and shine spark abilities from Super Metroid were being considered for Metroid Prime. By delving into the buried content in the final version of the game, it's possible to access an image showing Samus jumping and moving at what appears to be quite high speeds. These abilities, of course, were not included in the completed game. Before Metroid Prime 2 began development, there was a tentative title in the works, aptly named Metroid 1.5. The pitch for the game was prepared by Prime 1 level designer Tony Giovannini and concept artist Andrew Jones, and centered around Samus' journey directly following the events of Prime. The plot of this game was centered around a massive starship stuck in a parallel dimension. Upon completing her mission on Talon 4, Samus would enter cryosleep for the journey home. With her ship on autopilot, it would inadvertently latch onto a distress signal sent out by the starship, trapping her inside this derelict vessel. By having the game's setting placed in an alternate dimension, Giovannini and Jones envisioned Samus having to deal with radically different environments. Not only that, but since this title would have followed directly after the events of Metroid Prime, Samus would have access to all her abilities from the start. To balance this, they came up with the idea of a rogue AI controlling the ship, changing areas to limit Samus's capabilities, thus rendering much of her arsenal useless depending on the level. This AI would play host to several personalities as well, each with its own abilities and subsequent gameplay challenges. Their names were The Killer, The Child, The Mother, and The Martyr, with each appearing at different intervals in the game. Their ultimate goal was to crash the ship into a nearby peaceful planet, and it would be up to Samus to bring down this rogue AI. Multiplayer was also a topic of discussion for this title, and was something we would see in the final version of Prime 2, although the ideas they came up with were different from the classic deathmatch featured in that game. One such mode would pit three against one, with the lone player controlling the 
Omega Pirate, a boss from Prime 1. Several Metroid games have been in development for handhelds throughout the years that haven't made it for one reason or another. One such cancelled title was Metroid Dread. First reported to be in development in June 2005 by Game Informer, IGN soon followed suit and confirmed the title's existence in September 2005. With no appearance at E3 2005, speculation arose that it would be shown in 2006. Again, it was a no-show. And with no appearances throughout 2007 as well, there were rumors that the title had been cancelled. However, in 2007's Metroid Prime 3, one of the scannable codecs found within the game makes a tongue-in-cheek reference to the project, reading, Experiment Status Report Update. Metroid Project Dread is nearing the final stages of completion. This reignited speculation that the title was in development, though nothing ever came from it. In 2010, after the release of Metroid Other M, producer Yoshio Sakamoto was asked whether or not the project even existed. He refused to deny knowledge of the project, but said there were no plans to release it anytime soon. In the same year, IGN's Craig Harris claimed that he had seen the game while in development, that it was fully written, and that Nintendo could bring it back whenever they wanted. While Metroid Dread is perhaps the more famous cancelled project, at one point there was also the 3DS Metroid in the works at Next Level Games. While only rumor for some time, concept art was leaked in 2014 showing Samus in a slimmer, more angular design. The game was said to play at a greater speed compared to previous 2D installments such as Super Metroid and Metroid Fusion, and would have utilized the 3DS's capabilities by being a 2.5D title. The team at Next Level had a working prototype ready to show Nintendo, but were instead offered to work on what would become Luigi's Mansion Dark Moon instead. This Metroid title was cancelled as a result. There's actually a whole bunch of other interesting changes that were made throughout the Pikmin series. When the Pikmin games were re-released on the Wii as part of the new Play Control line, the Wallywog and Wogpole enemies had their names changed to Wally Hops and Walpoles in Europe. This was most likely done to avoid using a certain word that is a rarely used racial slur in the United Kingdom. This change was also made in the European release of Pikmin 3. The most drastic regional change was made to Pikmin 2. The Japanese version actually featured support for the Game Boy Advance Game Link Cable and e-reader peripherals. By scanning cards on the e-reader, the player could play three different minigames on their Game Boy Advance, Pikmin Plucking, Pikmin Parts, and Pikmin Path. These minigames were removed in the international versions of the game, as the e-reader had already been discontinued in the US and was never officially released in Europe. There's a large amount of unused content left behind in the Pikmin games. The first Pikmin game contains data for an enemy called Iwajen that attacks by shooting rocks at the player. The name is a combination of Iwa, the Japanese word for rock, and generator. There's also an entry in Olimar's log for the final day, where he celebrates collecting all the parts for his ship and wonders whether he will ever see the Pikmin again. This is impossible to view normally since collecting the final part of the ship immediately triggers the game's ending. The GameCube disc for Pikmin also contains a Windows.exe file that can be used to run the game in a debugging mode on PC. The game is missing most of its assets, unless the player enables game mode in the debug menu, at which point it can be played somewhat normally. However, Olimar's health will always be set to zero, and there are still some graphical bugs and crashing issues, as well as a complete lack of audio. Pikmin 2 contains several treasures that didn't make it to the final version. Among these unused treasures are four GameCube discs for Super Mario Sunshine, Luigi's Mansion, The Legend of Zelda The Wind Waker, and the original Pikmin. The files for Pikmin 2 also contain images from the Namco arcade game Mappy. It's not known why the images were there, though they were likely just used for testing purposes. There's also data for a seventh type of Pikmin alongside the five normal colors of Pikmin and the Bulbmen. Hacking the game to add the seventh type to your party reveals that they're actually Pikpik carrots. The carrots behave like normal Pikmin, though they lack animations and HUD icons. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. 
But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. There are several interesting Easter eggs and tidbits in the Pikmin games that aren't obvious at first glance. If the player collects all of the treasures in a cave in Pikmin 2, waiting at the results screen for 3 minutes and 50 seconds will cause Totaka's song to play. Aside from the three main entries in the series, there was almost another game that would have featured Pikmin characters. It was an experimental game in development for the GameCube titled Stage Debut. The game would have used the cancelled Game Boy Advance peripheral, the Game Eye, to take pictures of players' faces and paste them onto 3D models. Players could then interact with characters from Pikmin, Mario, and Animal Crossing. A portion of stage debut heavily influenced the creation of Nintendo's Miis and the Mii Channel. Some have also speculated that stage debut influenced the development of Nintendo Land. Did you know? There were numerous scrapped versions of Resident Evil 4 developed as far back as 1998, seven years before the final game's release. At the request of producer Shinji Mikami, the first version was directed by Hideki Kamiya following his success directing Resident Evil 2. Wanting to do something different, Kamiya tried to defy the series' conventions by ditching the tank controls and fixed camera angles. In its place would be a fast-paced, stylish action game starring a superhuman protagonist originally named Tony. Resident Evil 3 scenario writer Yasuhisa Kawamura recalled, Mikami told Kamiya to do as he wanted, so he did. The game ended up being nothing like a Resident Evil game at all. Mikami was angry about it at first, but we couldn't afford to scrap the project. Thus, the game was reworked as an original title, which would ultimately become Devil May Cry. Afterwards, Mikami tasked artist Hiroshi Shibata with directing the game's next iteration. Kawamura joined Shibata's team, hoping to fix the Resident Evil series, especially in the face of Silent Hill. Kawamura felt the horror portion of Resident Evil was in a rut. He told Eurogamer, Resident Evil's mystery is dependent upon science and forensic fiction, and that challenges humans to understand the concept fully. Silent Hill's notion of horror was based on hallucinations and ghosts. There's no explanation behind these things. This concept on its own would forever be unknown territory, impossible to comprehend and impossible to predict. I told Shibata, if we want to pursue pure horror, we need to find an unexplainable concept. Let's create a setting that doesn't revolve around science or reason. Inspired by the 2000 film Lost Souls, Kawamura came up with the idea of Leon being infected with a mysterious virus and plagued by hallucinations. Players would also be relentlessly pursued by a ghostly man wielding a hook. This iteration of the game, dubbed the Hookman version by some, was introduced by Mikami at E3 2003. However, in spite of Mikami's claims that the project was proceeding very smoothly, the game was in deep trouble. Kawamura didn't want players to know when Leon's hallucination would happen, so hidden checkpoints would trigger Leon's hallucinations. And depending on the player's behavior, the structure of the world would change. This meant the team had to create two sets of 3D models for everything, one for the real world and one for hallucinations. This doubled the development cost and was difficult to fit into the GameCube's RAM. The team tried reworking the project several times over to save it, and considered featuring a single monster throughout the entirety of the game at one point. And despite their efforts, Mikami ultimately stepped in and took over development, creating the Resident Evil 4 we know today. Kawamura confessed, it was disappointing and discouraging. I still think the idea was brilliant, but I didn't have enough skill or guts to put the plan into action. I don't know if I could have done anything to prevent that occurrence. I just wanted to make a scary Resident Evil game. 
Interestingly, references to Shibata and Kawamura's version of Resident Evil 4 can be found in the debug menu of the Resident Evil 4 preview disc. A list of stages can be found in the debug menu which include references to areas from trailers of scrapped versions of the game, such as Taxidermy Room, Doll Room, and Airship Corridor. Despite the project's shortcomings, Kawamura wasn't the only one who felt RE4 needed to overhaul the series. Producer Hiroyuki Kobayashi also noticed that the Resident Evil games were recycling the same ideas to the point that Capcom staff became bored working on them, and would transfer to different projects. Kobayashi approached Mikami to figure out how they could make a game to please old fans as well as make new ones. Following the mild commercial failure of his own Resident Evil remake in 2002, Mikami decided to take the series in a more action-packed direction. Mikami told IGN, with Resident Evil 1, 2, and 3, and all the rest of the series before Resident Evil 4, I was always saying to the staff, scaring the player is the number one thing. But for the first time in Resident Evil 4, I told the team that fun gameplay was the most important thing. That all came out of the commercial failure of the Resident Evil remake. One of Mikami's most crucial decisions was to change the game's camera system. Earlier Resident Evil 4 builds had an over-the-shoulder camera for combat, but the idea to use the camera throughout the entire game was inspired by Mikami playing Onimusha 3 Demon Siege. Though he enjoyed the game, he couldn't shake the feeling that it would have been better if the camera was placed behind the character. While the camera system changed, Resi 4 still uses tank controls, contrary to popular belief. For instance, the player can only move forwards or backwards, while right and left only serve to turn the player in that respective direction. In fact, the game switches to a fixed camera perspective during the Ashley segment exclusively in the Japanese version of the game. Although this throwback was cut from the Western releases, various fans such as YouTuber GarySTZ have modded fixed camera angles into the game with surprising success. At one point in development, the team considered adding the ability to strafe, but the feature was dropped after developers felt the addition made the game feel too much like a military shooter rather than a Resident Evil game. Although RE4 originally started out as a PlayStation 2 game, Mikami reportedly became frustrated with the console by late 2000 and began looking towards competing hardware. Catching wind of this, Microsoft quickly set up a meeting with Mikami on Christmas Day in 2000, hoping to woo the director into bringing the famous survival horror series to the Xbox. Although the entire meeting was conducted in Japanese, Xbox's then-director of third-party relations, Kevin Backus, was kept up to date in person via written notes. This only bought him a front-seat ticket to watch the potentially monumental deal go up in flames right before his eyes. While things started out smoothly, Mikami became skeptical of if the game would perform well on Xbox, which hadn't even launched and faced an uphill battle in Japan. He asked what Xbox had to offer him and his team, telling Xbox Japan, What is your philosophy? Sony says games are entertainment, something larger, fueled by the emotion engine. Nintendo says games are toys, created by the legendary Shigeru Miyamoto, perhaps the greatest game developer of all time. What do you feel? After Microsoft's team failed to come up with an answer, he promptly stood up, bowed, and left. Beckus lamented, I almost jumped out the window because we had said repeatedly that we aspire to enable games that could be considered art, much like film. That because of the maturity of the development tools and the APIs and the power of the technology, game developers on Xbox would be able to concentrate on the features that elevated games to being something more than they were otherwise. So the guy who reported to me said, oh that's so great, I wish I had known that. But unfortunately, it was too late. In a desperate bit to save the deal, Bacchus ordered Pat Ahura, the figurehead of Xbox's Japan division at the time, to board the next train to Osaka and smooth things over with Mikami. However, by the time Ahura arrived, Mikami had already met up with Nintendo and agreed to develop Resident Evil 4 for the GameCube.
Resi 4 went on to become the headliner for the Capcom 5 deal in 2002, where Capcom agreed to produce five games exclusively for the GameCube. However, Capcom backpedaled on the deal later that year, claiming only Resident Evil 4 would remain an exclusive. When asked if RE4 would ever be ported to the PlayStation 2, Kobayashi responded, definitely not, definitely not, it's a GameCube exclusive. Mikami even said he would cut his own head off should the game ever be released on any other platform. Nevertheless, just a few months before the game's release on the GameCube, Capcom announced that Resident Evil 4 would be headed to the PlayStation 2 by the end of 2005. In fact, the game would go on to be ported to the Wii, PlayStation 3, Xbox 360, PlayStation 4, Xbox One, iOS, Android, and PC twice over. A port even made its way to the obscure Zebo console in Brazil. This statement was referenced in Mikami's next game, God Hand, which included a racing dog named Mikami's Head. Resident Evil 4 had struggled with censorship in various parts of the world. For example, it's impossible to blow off the heads of enemies in the Japanese versions of the game. Due to this, Japanese players can never see the game's Ganados walk without their heads. Similarly, while the game's infamous chainsaw death animation is still present, Leon's head does not get torn off in the Japanese release. The death animation of the Plagas were toned down as well. These changes were made due to the Japanese game's ratings board Sero's list of banned expressions. This list includes restrictions on the expression of mutilation slash body cutting that gives an extremely cruel impression among many others. Meanwhile, the German version of Resident Evil 4 kept the decapitations. However, the assignment Ada and mercenaries modes were cut entirely. It's speculated that this change was made as the minigames could be interpreted as glorifying senseless violence. Whatever the case, the uncut version of the game was placed on Germany's list of media harmful to young people, commonly known as the Index, where it faced strict regulations. The game remained on the Index for over a decade, forcing Capcom to censor 2014's Resident Evil 4 Ultimate HD edition in Germany as well, until it was finally removed from the list and subsequently restored in 2016. Violence wasn't the only issue with censors either. According to censored gaming, Ashley Graham's breast physics vary between releases. For example, the physics in the Japanese and European GameCube releases are noticeably toned down compared to the North American GameCube version. On the other hand, the PS2 release removed the physics altogether worldwide. Resident Evil 4 has its fair share of easter eggs. The name of the Killer7 handgun is a reference to Suda51's game of the same name, which Mikami co-wrote and produced. The gun also bears a resemblance to Killer7's Katie Smith's AMT Hardballer. Meanwhile, the description on the Broken Butterfly reads, a very powerful .45 Magnum revolver. This will make anyone's day. The last line is likely an homage to Clint Eastwood's famous line in Dirty Harry. Go ahead, make my day. Another easter egg laid undiscovered for nearly 12 years after the game's release. On January 4th, 2017, YouTuber SR212787 found a 2D image of a person in a green jacket hidden far off in the distance during a segment of the game in Chapter 5-4. Although the discovery made waves through the gaming community, Capcom has remained silent on the matter and the identity of the person remains a mystery to this day. We're willing to bet that you're watching this video because, like us, you loved the GameCube and its exclusive lineup of games. What's interesting about some of the GameCube's most recognizable titles is that they were originally planned to release on the Nintendo 64. One GameCube game that was planned to release on the N64 was Eternal Darkness Sanity's Requiem. The game was announced at E3 in 1999 and was even demoed at the convention. Booths demonstrating the game on N64 hardware were situated around the convention hall, meaning a good portion of the title had already been developed at the time of the announcement. As the GameCube was released during the title's creation, and a number of changes were made to the game, it was decided to transfer what had been developed to the GameCube with a number of improvements. 
Another example is Rare's Star Fox Adventures, which started its life as an N64 game called Dinosaur Planet, and had nothing to do with the Star Fox series at all. After Nintendo veteran Shigeru Miyamoto noticed similarities between Dinosaur Planet and Star Fox, the decision was made to make the game part of Star Fox. Additionally, according to UK official Nintendo magazine, Tricky was originally planned to be Tricky the Triceratops, one of the bosses from the N64 racing game Diddy Kong Racing. After transitioning to the GameCube and the Star Fox universe, it was decided that they should become an original character instead. Resident Evil Zero was also planned to appear on the N64 and during this time. It was even planned for the Resident Evil prequel to have multiple endings based on which character survived the events of the game. Unlike the final game, this means that there would have been points in the game in which either of the protagonists, Rebecca or Billy, could have been killed. Unlike the other two games mentioned, these changes weren't made because of the transition to the new console, but instead because of continuity issues. If Rebecca had died in the prequel, she wouldn't have been alive during the story of Resident Evil 1. Speaking of alternate finales, another alternate ending which actually made its way into the game's final release appeared in Custom Robo for the GameCube. Towards the end of the game, the player is asked whether they want to accompany their team to the Z Syndicate hideout. If they select the response, I'm not going, 20 times, Harry will stop his pleading and the team will depart without them. An alternate ending is then shown where the human race is wiped out at the hands of the game's villain, and Harry chastises the player for letting him and his comrades die because of the player's decision to select the wrong dialogue choice. Some games on the GameCube had differences in their releases for various regions of the world. With the compilation disc The Legend of Zelda Collector's Edition, the Canadian release featured different box art. While the US release featured screenshots of each game included in the compilation, Canada was shown each of the game's logos instead. In Japan, the game also came in a two-disc case, but internationally it was shipped with a standard single-disc case. Many believe that this change was due to the Japanese version's increased instruction manual size. On top of this, the music which plays during the game's selection menu differs between regions too. Japan's game has an original remix of the main Legend of Zelda theme. And the international game has the song from the Master Quest menu instead. Another game with international differences is Mario Party 6. In Japan, the vegetable pulled out of the ground in the minigame Garden Grab is a turnip, while elsewhere in the world it's a carrot. In Europe and Australia, the four minigames based on luck, Same is Lame, Trapeze Artist, Pitfall and Trick or Tree aren't included in the Endurance Alley mode. This is because the games bring a possibility of unavoidably breaking a win streak based entirely on luck. Another change comes with the European and Australian games Battle Spaces, which instead of featuring an uppercase B, display a lightning bolt similar to the Battle Spaces in Mario Party 2. PAL versions of the game also extended the playtime for the minigame Fruit Talk Tale from 60 seconds to 72 seconds. Another piece of trivia about a Mario minigame comes from Paper Mario The Thousand Year Door. Despite how it may appear, the Happy Lucky Lottery has nothing to do with luck at all. The chances of winning are actually determined by when the player bought the ticket based on the internal clock of the GameCube. The date of the player's purchase of a ticket is saved into memory, and that ticket will win depending on the number of days that have passed from the day of purchase. The player may receive 4th place if they check the board between 4 to 10 days later. 
third place between 25 and 35 days, second between 85 and 115 days, and first place between 335 and 395 days later. It's possible, however, to cheat the system by adjusting the console's calendar. By shifting the clock forward, it can greatly increase the odds of winning by selecting a day between the given timeframes. However, by pushing the clock back to a date earlier than when the ticket was purchased, lucky lottery host Lucky will ask the player whether they had changed the console's clock. Telling the host that they haven't will keep the pressure on to speak the truth, which, if they do, will see the character fly into a fit of rage and demand that the player pay 500 coins in order to reset the lottery and allow it to be played again. To add to this, buying a replacement ticket will simply reset the purchase date to when the new ticket was obtained, meaning that by playing legitimately, the player will have to wait even longer before the chance of winning each respective prize. This is a really complicated system, and for more information on exactly how the game calculates the player's chances, you should take a look at Strider's comprehensive video in the description down below. Metal Gear Solid Twin Snakes, the remake of the legendary PlayStation game, features all new gameplay and cutscenes. One of these cutscenes, however, caused some issues with the overall continuity of the series. When Snake is first introduced to Revolver Ocelot, the character is portrayed as right-handed, demonstrated by a display of flair. After Grey Fox cuts his arm off, he attempts to do this again with his left hand, leading to him fumbling and dropping his gun. Although later in the game he manages to shoot the PAL key from Snake's hand without hitting Snake or damaging the key. In the prequel, Metal Gear Solid 3 Snake Eater, Ocelot is shown to be ambidextrous, displaying equal skill with both his left and right hands. He also uses his gun left-handed throughout Metal Gear Solid 2 Sons of Liberty. While it's possible that he could have trained his left hand by the events of MGS2, MGS3 is set decades before the events of Twin Snakes. Though likely just an oversight by developers Silicon Knights, this continuity error could have come about as Twin Snakes and Snake Eater were in production simultaneously, with both releasing just months apart in 2004. One character who went from using a gun to nothing at all is Vanessa from PN03. It was originally intended for the character to use a gun during gameplay to dispatch adversaries, but due to scheduling conflicts, the developers weren't able to complete the gun animations in time. Because of this, the team opted for the character to shoot energy blasts from her hands in instead. Some characters may be defined by time constraints, but others are defined by more outlandish ideas, such as references to other games. In Sonic Team's title Billy Hatcher and the Giant Egg, the four playable characters in the game's multiplayer and story modes are actually based on four of the main cast members from the Sonic the Hedgehog series. Billy Hatcher is based on Sonic the Hedgehog, Chick Poacher is Tails, Bantam Scrambled is Knuckles, and Rolly Roll is based on Amy. Each of these characters uses similar colors to the characters in Sonic, as well as striking similar poses as well. As an example shown with the game's box art, Billy can be seen taking the same stance as Sonic in the artwork for Sonic Adventure 2. Sonic Team might reference their previous creations in character designs, but Nintendo enjoyed adding a small easter egg to 1080 Avalanche which referenced their full-blown retro past. A special snowboard can be unlocked called the Old School Board, which takes the appearance of a classic NES controller. While using the board, the sound effects for bumping into objects and jumping are changed to the sounds used for a small Mario in the original Super Mario Bros. There's actually also a hidden cheat relating to this board. By pausing the game and pressing up, down, up, down, left, right, left, right, and then B, and then unpausing the game, the screen will become pixelated. Why you'd want to play the game like that, I don't know, this is a horrible mess. 
Other references to Mario in the game include an ice sculpture of the Nintendo hero towards the end of the Angel Light Midnight City course, and a Mario sprite from Super Mario All-Stars can be found on the bottom of Ricky Winterbourne's 8-bit Soul Snowboard. The alternate version of this board will replace Mario with Luigi instead. The game was also originally intended to have a different subtitle. Rather than being 1080 Avalanche, the game would have been called 1080 White Storm, similar to Wave Race Blue Storm, as shown in an unused placeholder title screen found in the game's data. Wave Race Blue Storm actually has an easter egg that wasn't discovered for nine years. In the game's audio settings, changing the waveform display to that of vertically rising fog, then pressing up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, and then AXZ, and then finally selecting the character Hayoto Hayami on any race, will change the game's narrator to a rather unfriendly voice. You have chosen poorly. And the game's turbo sound effect into a little girl making a meowing noise. In this episode, we'll be taking yet another look at trivia related to the GameCube. Nintendo's little box of joy is all about getting the most out of games, whether you are a seasoned developer or a kid lucky enough to unwrap it for Christmas. Some of the most successful franchises in gaming found their footing on the GameCube, and a couple saw their downfall. But enough waffle, let's dive right in. By the time of the GameCube's release, it had become clear to developers from every corner of the industry that the name Nintendo was synonymous with the word quality. This was even true for their competition, with one unlikely third party seriously considering joining the tech giant. Speaking to Edge in August 2018, Toshihiro Nagoshi revealed that he once pitched a new Metroid title for the GameCube shortly after the console's release, back when he was still part of Sega's subsidiary Amusement Vision. Following the commercial failure of the Dreamcast, Sega bosses implemented a company restructure, shifting focus away from hardware to software. Hitching their wagon to any of Nintendo's household names would net Sega the colossal audience of Nintendo superfans previously inaccessible to them. As far as Nagoshi was concerned, developing for Nintendo was an opportunity to demonstrate to their ex-rivals that Sega still had a lot of talent to offer. Sadly, Nagoshi provided no further details on the pitch itself, leaving only speculation on what Amusement Vision might have brought to the Metroid franchise. Amusement Vision closed its doors in 2004, so any preliminary drafting is likely to have been lost with the studio's closure. The ongoing development of Retro Studios Metroid Prime likely affected the disappointing outcome of Sega's proposal. To say that Prime had the full backing of Nintendo would be an understatement. They brute forced themselves into being the majority holder of Retro Studios by purchasing stock in May 2002, bringing it under the Nintendo umbrella and as a first-party developer. The amount of money and time poured into Prime is likely to have priced out all proposals, regardless of who was making the pitch. To be fair to Nintendo, putting all their eggs in one basket paid off, with Metroid Prime being a huge critical success and a decent financial success to boot. After that, Nintendo had no room for anyone but Retro Studios regarding big Metroid titles. This trend has continued with the development of Metroid Prime 4. Though Eurogamer claimed it was originally being developed by Bandai Namco Studios Singapore, in January 2019, Nintendo announced series veteran Kensuke Tanabe would once again be working with Retro Studios to rebuild the game from the ground up after they were unhappy with the way the game was progressing. Another GameCube pitch kept out of public knowledge came from industry talent Yasuyuki Honor. Now attached to Monolith, Honor is famed for his work at Square throughout the 90s, where he helped shape the massively popular Xenogears and Chrono Trigger. 
Pono recently revealed to Twitter followers that Namco and Nintendo had once been in talk for a follow-up to the culturally beloved classic Earthbound, otherwise known as Mother 2 in Japan. With the late Satoru Iwata playing matchmaker, Hone was given the opportunity to pitch his GameCube Earthbound concept to series director Shigesato Itoi back in 2003. It became quickly apparent that Iwata had arranged this meeting of the three men, but neglected to inform Itoi that the pitch would be involved, possibly to avoid him turning it down without first seeing what he had to offer. According to Hone, Itoi seemed largely uninterested in it as a serious project, but responded positively to the direction he'd taken with the game's visual style. Rather than using more traditional hand-drawn 2D sprites, Hone used cloth and felt mock-ups to represent a craft-based in-game world reminiscent of a child's school art project, predating games like Kirby's Epic Yarn and Yoshi's Woolly World. The mock-ups demonstrated Honor's commitment to the series' setting of 1980s America, complete with the white picket fence and suburban living, while trying to create something grander than past installments. The pitch's ultimate failure was likely attributed to the development of Mother 3, originally set to release on the Super Famicom before shifting to the Nintendo 64 and then being halted in 2000 with the impending release of the GameCube. The project was later restarted, this time destined for the Game Boy Advance on the same year that Honor made his pitch. Mother 3 eventually released in Japan in 2006, leaving fans outside the country itching for localization to this very day. This glimpse of what might have been with an industry juggernaut such as Yusuyuki Hana at the helm only fanned the flames of their fervor. Another beloved Nintendo franchise with a charming aesthetic is Animal Crossing. On August 7th, 2002, Nintendo held a contest for the original game called the Animal Crossing Official Pioneers Program. In the contest, a limited number of participants would receive an early access copy of Animal Crossing and have access to an online forum where they could interact with Nintendo of America staff members, complete in-game objectives, provide feedback, and participate in online chats. To apply, players would have to submit a short 50-word message explaining why Nintendo should pick them to be Animal Crossing Pioneers pioneers, with 125 teams of two people ultimately being chosen. Each winner was provided with a specially marked promotional disc for Animal Crossing, a 59-block memory card, a calendar spanning September 2002 to December 2003, as well as online forum access. As the gaming industry matured, the system menus of older generations of consoles have turned into a strangely specific font of nostalgia. For many, the rotating glass cube of the GameCube's menu screen is no different, and over the years fans have been delving into the code for the system's IPL, basically the pre-boot sequence, to strip it back and see how it all works. Hidden in the system's IPL ROM is a block of text that reads, Pokemon Kinjin 2000, the new Pokemon Stadium. This was likely used to test the gameplay side of the cube, which displays the name and logo of the current game loaded into the disk drive. We're guessing that someone at Nintendo must have been very excited about Pokemon Stadium 2 for the Nintendo 64, known as Pokemon Kinjin in Japan and evidently either upcoming or freshly released at the time. What's more, the game was released in December 2000, pinning the IPL ROM's dev date to around a year before the GameCube's release. A far less endearing message shows up in the code of the 2007 GameCube title Meet the Robinsons, left by developers Avalanche Software for any oblivious game preservationist to find. I am a hacksaw because I love... <laughs> Avalanche clearly had an ongoing issue with the rising number of homebrew and emulation enthusiasts, and has a storied history of building emulation detection into their software to prevent their games running on anything other than their intended hardware. 
The less than savoury shout out is pretty amusing when you consider the game itself is an adaptation of the Disney film of the same name, and was subsequently published by Disney Interactive Studios. Developer Capcom has found much success on many platforms, GameCube included with its Mega Man franchise. The Personal Terminal, or PET, became a prominent part of the Mega Man universe after the release of Mega Man Battle Network. In these spin-offs, Mega Man is protagonist Lan Hikari's Net Navigator, an artificial intelligence installed on the PET that allows him to traverse the net, fighting off rogue viruses and bringing down online crime organizations. By the time the GameCube rolled around, the PET was as intrinsic to Mega Man as the Pokeball is to Pokemon, helped by its prominence in the Mega Man NT Warrior anime. Fans had embraced the IP's reimagining, and a follow-up of Battle Network was released exclusively for the GameCube called Mega Man Network Transmission. Nintendo had concept art knocked up for a special edition GameCube controller set to be bundled with every copy of the game. Designed to resemble the plug-in PET shown in the anime, it even includes an empty frame in the place of the PET screen that the player could slide any image they liked to personalize it for themselves. Fans were unaware of the controller until the publication of the art book Mega Man Battle Network Official Complete Works. Originally published in 2009, the art book has been tough to get hold of, but the hardcover release in August 2019 has given Mega Man Mega fans the opportunity to get their hands on a copy relatively cheaply. Another third-party franchise title that GameCube fans welcomed with open arms was Soul Calibur 2. This is partly because the GameCube version of the game featured Link as a playable character, as you likely already know. However, what you may not know is that the remnants of Link can still be found in the PlayStation 2 version's game disc. It's possible to pull up Link's character profile by modding the game to pull up text that isn't normally accessible. This can also be done with Spawn, the playable character exclusive to the Xbox version of the game. With this discovery, it's possible that more remnants of the GameCube version could be on the PS2 game disc. With the birth of the Nintendo 64, Nintendo realized one problem with their new foray in the console space third-party support. Many other consoles, particularly those working with disc-based technology, had a plethora of third-party developers helping build the catalogue of games available on their systems. Nintendo, on the other hand, working with a more limited cartridge format, struggled to gain widespread support. They developed a new add-on for the Nintendo 64 called the 64DD, which would help improve the system's capabilities. Though this venture proved to be limited in execution, ultimately being released exclusively in Japan, Nintendo didn't stop there. Also looking to help finance more independent studios specifically to release games on Nintendo's platform. Though more than 60 games were announced for the add-on, of the 9 games that did see the release on the 64DD by the end of its production, only one ultimately saw a port for Nintendo's next console, the GameCube but it would not see publication in the United States. That game was Doshin the Giant. Doshin the Giant was developed by Param in partnership with Nintendo, who published the title in 1999 for the Nintendo 64 DD, and 2002 for the GameCube. The initial DD release was exclusive to Japan, of course, as the system never left the country, while the GameCube port was published in both Japan and Europe. The game is presented through spoken narration by a native called Sodoru, from the island Barodo, Sodoru covers his face with a mask and tells a legend of a giant that rose from a sea as the sun rose in the morning, and would return to the surf at sunset. While telling this legend, Doshin, the friendly love giant, makes his appearance. The player takes on the role of Doshin, while Sodoru tells the player about the desires of the island's inhabitants, starting with a simple request such as having more trees or having their hills reformed. 
In return, the people of the island will shower Doshin with love, in the form of hearts, which in turn help increase his size. However, there is a more sinister side to Doshin. He is capable of transforming into a starkly contrasting version of himself, Jashin, the angry hate giant. With each passing day, the giant will return to the sea. The next day, Doshin returns, though this is not the same giant. Each day, a new generation of giant appears at its original size. This isn't to say that each day is starting anew, as each giant will be recorded, and the islanders' relationship with the giants will be inherited by their next incarnation. Sodoru suggests that the giant may be able to help unite the four tribes living across the land. No small feat, and something which will take up the majority of Doshin's time. Ultimately, the game's main goal is to have villagers create monuments towards Doshin, some out of love and some out of hate. Whilst this is the main goal of the game, the player is able to simply spend their time enjoying the island, tending to the villagers for as long as they like. Each in-game day lasts for about 30 minutes, and during that time the player can fulfill requests to bolster their reputation amongst the villagers of the island by improving their quality of life. These range from needing more trees, raising or lowering the ground, removing obstructions, or simply wishing for the gift of a flower from the giant. Doshin only has a few skills at his disposal, all based around his monumental size. He is able to manipulate the landscape by raising or lowering the ground, and his size also allows him to pick up objects and transport them, including trees, villages, and even buildings. He is capable of jumping in order to avert certain natural disasters, though because of his size, this will affect the landscape beneath him. When Doshin turns into his evil Jashin form, the ability to pick up objects is replaced with the ability to smash the ground, and to fire a shockwave which can alter the landscape. The button can even be held in to continuously fire. Doshin's size grows after the counter around the perimeter of the screen has been filled with either hearts or skulls, indicating love or hate respectively. If Doshin does something that pleases the villagers, hearts will start to form clockwise around the screen, but if he does something to make them hate him, skulls will appear anti-clockwise. The hearts and skulls are capable of overriding each other, as a full circle of only one type is required to make the giant grow. At times with the giant's growth, issues can also arise. Whilst being larger will allow Doshin to move larger objects or traverse the island quicker, he can also more easily crush villages and buildings under his feet. The villagers rely on a green energy supplied by trees, often required for them to construct new buildings. After some time, however, trees, like all living organisms, will wither away and die. By placing trees near a water source, their life can be prolonged. Placing the wilted old trees together will help them regain their vitality. Giant boxes also appear in a variety of places across Barodo Island, dropping from the sky or found under houses revealed after picking them up. Inside, the player can find a bunch of trees, love or hate, or even new villagers from a random tribe. The boxes can sometimes give clues as to what they contain. There are four tribes of villagers, red, green, yellow and blue, with each starting in a different area of the island, all of which request help in building their village. Each colored tribe builds a different monument for the giant. By bringing villagers of different tribes together in uninhabited locations, they are able to start a new village tribe under a shared banner of their combined colors, which will in turn eventually build a new monument, with 15 of the monuments coming from various color combinations of tribes. In order to start the construction of a monument, villagers will ask for a flower from the giant. Flowers grow in an area where there are seven trees close to each other. Once together, they will wither and die, and eight new trees will begin to grow in their place, as well as a small red flower. Only one flower can be used on the island at a time. If there are two or more, only one will survive. 
Natural disasters can occur around the island, causing destruction. This includes the appearance of tornadoes, volcanic eruptions, or the appearance of spirits known as naughties, who will appear and steal villages or trees. Doshin is able to counter these disasters, however, reducing their damage. After each day, the player is shown a list of the actions they performed, as well as a number of comments from the villagers, varying in their value – positive, negative, or simply just indifferent. The game returns the player to a title screen in which they can review constructed monuments in the monument list, check their photos that have been taken in-game in their photo album, as well as check the stats of the previous days spent on the island in the Book of the Giants. Every new day, Doshin will start at the ornamental hairpin, an object which he is also able to move, changing where the player initially spawns on the island. The core concepts of the game remain the same in both 64DD and GameCube releases of the title. There is actually a sequel to Doshin the Giant, though it could be seen as more of an expansion. Roughly translated as, Doshin the Giant Tinkling Toddler Liberation Front Assemble, the sequel is a completely different game that requires the use of the original Doshin the Giant. The game takes place at the Doshin Exhibition 96, where Doshin the Giant has been captured, chained up, and stands center stage. The player takes control of a child who is whisked out of their bed and into the world of dreams, where they find the imprisoned Doshin. The expansion's perspective is 2.5D, with the main character appearing as a flat silhouette of a child, maneuvering around a 3D environment via a side-scrolling motion. The child has a heart meter that is continually filling up, resulting in a game over should it reach capacity. In order to avoid this, the child can tinkle hearts out. Doing so on signs and people will interact with them, and signs representing the variety of monuments found in the initial Doshin release. If tinkled on, the player will need to prove that they have a monument built in their base game by switching discs. If successful, a pavilion will be built in the sign's place in the dream world, as well as a queen companion appearing. This queen companion will set obscure tasks to complete in the original Doshin the Giant. If accomplished, the player will be rewarded with a movie. There are 17 movies in total to collect, each with the same title, More Than Giant. These movies are black and white scenes based around the original game. The player can also tinkle on other kids and challenge them to a tinkle contest, with the opponent joining the player's team if beaten, improving the player's tinkle ability. The aim of the game is to tinkle on Doshin, making him bigger, eventually big enough to escape. The game's creator, Kazutoshi Ida, said that at the start of his career in developing video games, he had set himself a personal rule to create three games, Aquanaut's Holiday, Tale of the Sun, and last but not least, Doshin the Giant. His initial entrance into game development was to create what he called Games Without a Goal, something which would allow the player to not just be entertained, but to take their time observing and learning more about themselves, whilst they learned more about his games. In this sense, Kazutoshi's approach to game development was to create art over interactive entertainment. His focus is on kansatsu, or observation. It is through observation that people allow themselves to think of new ideas and explore more about the world, as well as themselves. Doshin began development as a Nintendo 64DD exclusive, with the game being released as a launch title for the system, one of only two. In total, only nine games were ever released for the system, with many games considered for development on the console ultimately being cancelled or shifted to new platforms. During an interview with IGN, Ida revealed that he believed it possible to convert Doshin to a cartridge-based title easily, only taking out a few features that would only work on the 64DD. He also revealed that the team behind Doshin was made up of only six members of staff, and that they were continuing to think up new ideas for Doshin on the 64DD, thus leading to the game's expansion pack. 
While porting Doshin over to the GameCube, some elements of the game were altered. The mechanic of requiring flowers for building monuments was not in the original release, several monuments were altered, the ability for Doshin to slide down hills was added, and the GameCube release includes additional islands after completion, as well as multiple endings whilst the 64DD only had one. Doshin was to be the mascot of the 64DD and RandNet online subscription service that was provided with it. Various items were available to be purchased, including t-shirts, the soundtrack, an art book for Doshin, and Doshin the official guidebook, which was also given away with the subscription. For the short time RandNet was available, subscribers were given a Doshin Christmas card on the second year, and a Doshin newsletter was included with the regular newsletter sent to every member. This however only lasted from December to September 2000. Doshin made his first appearance in the US with the release of Super Smash Bros. Melee, as a trophy shown holding a villager in his hands. Jashin would also appear, though both would be known as the Love Giant and the Hate Giant respectively, rather than their given names. One concept that had been considered by Miyamoto for the title was having the game take place across a truly spherical planet, but after presenting the idea to the team behind Doshin, they had already gone far too deep into development to go back and include such an idea. Ultimately, this concept would be given new life with the creation of Super Mario Galaxy. Within the data of Doshin the Giant is an unused graphic showing the face of a young boy, likely used as an early placeholder. The child's identity is unknown. Allegedly, the strange name of Doshin is actually a slightly modified onomatopoeia of the sound the giant makes when his feet tread on the earth. Param had told IGN in 1999 that the company was in talks with Nintendo of America to bring the original 64DD release to the United States in a cartridge format, as the 64DD was exclusively released in Japan and thus would need to be converted to work on a standard Nintendo 64 console. Unconfirmed rumors also circulated that Infograms were interested in possibly publishing the game in the US, but this also never came to fruition. Doshin the Giant's lack of GameCube release in the United States is actually related to the release of an entirely different game, one which wouldn't see release in Europe. Cubivore Survival of the Fittest received a release in America, another game which was initially created for the 64DD before transitioning to the GameCube. When asked, Shigeru Miyamoto said that both titles were being reviewed by Nintendo to confirm their suitability for international localization. Atlas announced later that they would take on the publishing task for Cubivore in the US, whilst Nintendo published Ocean in Europe, and both developed by two studios who operated as subsidiary groups of Marigold Management, a company that Nintendo had created to recruit independent game companies. The company, a joint venture between Nintendo and Recruit, a human resources company, was formed after Nintendo found the N64 lacking in third-party support. Marigold would provide the companies with financing, as to let the game studio simply focus on the creation of new titles, with the condition being that the games be ready within five years. The lack of American release for Doshin, but the presence of Cubivore in the region, suggests that Nintendo wasn't keen on publishing an extensive number of niche titles across the world, due to the risk of failure when it comes to returns on investment. Depending on your interests in gaming, it's either unfortunate for Europe that there was no release of Cubivore, or unfortunate for America that they would never be able to experience life as a giant just trying to spread a little love or hate. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. 
that crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.